Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, very good afternoon. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send them to us, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. The questions is plural, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com is how you can reach us. If you'd like to join us live on the internet, you can do so through our website, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab and you'll be sent to where uh, a place rather where you can engage with us face-to-face. And on the right side of the screen, we'll have a comment section open and available for you to take advantage of while we are streaming. If you are unable to join us live, note we'll have a countdown to the next time we are broadcasting live and as well opportunities and links for you to send your questions to us by email there. If you'd like to use social media, our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, and our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, noting the uh, unpredictability of how long and how often we will be on there, uh, if there's a technical difficulty, then of course just pray for us. But if we are taken down for any reason, note that our website will still remain active. They can't ban us on our own platform. We look forward to engaging with you wherever you choose to engage with us. However, Note that the only two requirements for your questions are regards to the Bible and sincerity. Anything else will be welcomed for the broadcast. And, of course, make sure that your question is phrased in the form of a question, not as stringent as Jeopardy, but close enough. Uh, we're looking forward to engaging with you, as well as on the topic for apologetics today. If we haven't been banned yet, we probably will be. So keep us in prayer that God speaks more than we do, and we will do the same. Peter, can you start us off with prayer? Yeah. Uh, Father, we love you so much, and we want to glorify you in this time. We want to spend time focusing on your word and your truth and allow it to bring us peace in these really uncertain and chaotic times and allow us to bring us uh, confidence in what we need to do and how we need to move forward in our day-to-day lives. And I do pray that all those listening would be benefited by it, that they would be more encouraged in their faith of you and more ready to share it with those around them. We love you, Lord, and in your name. Amen. That is true. Now, Last week and the week before, we discussed a little bit about the controversy that's been essentially created in the last few decades in regards to gender theory, gender identity, and, of course, the um, conflict that that has with the biblical worldview. Obviously, these are still human beings made in the image and likeness of God, and whether they call themselves pagan, whether they call themselves Muslim, Hindu, or hedonist in this case, we still want to share the gospel with them. So after defining the difference last week, we want to get more into the uh, proper terms of engagement for how to effectively share with and engage with this audience. Now note that it is, like anything else, more emotionally charged than factually based, so you have to tread carefully if you want to get somewhere. And just me and my pride, I hate to have to relinquish being right or getting those gotcha points, but that's definitely the first landmine to avoid. Before we get into that, though, is there anything we need to recap or clarify about this issue so we understand why we need to be equipped for it? Uh, Yeah, no, I mean, it would be a lot to get back into. Uh, I would just encourage you guys to listen to our broadcast that happened, I think it was two weeks ago on on Tuesday. So you can just go back to our archives and listen to it. We just give an overview of gender theory and why it is in conflict with the Christian worldview. 
But one thing I also want to establish is that there's a big difference between talking to someone who's saved and someone who's not saved. Right. So there's increasingly amounts of Christians who believe in gender theory, and there's a very distinct way that you would talk to that person. So if you believe, right, if you, not just that they're saying, oh, I'm a Christian, and they're more like, uh, you know, Matthew Sponge or someone, someone like that, where they, I mean, uh, you know, any, Matthew Vines, I'm sorry, Whatever that or means. Charles Sponge. These are these are not people that I would consider believers. No. So I would I would try to share with them the gospel. These guys do not believe in the gospels. We understand it. But if I am talking to someone who believes in the gospel, they believe in the word of God. They are trying to be a Christian, but they've just been taken taken under by this gender theory. There's a big difference between how I would talk to that person and how I would talk to someone who's unsaved. If it's someone who's unsaved, I'm always going to try to redirect the conversation to the gospel. Um, if they're just really hung up on this issue and they're like, no, like I cannot believe in the Bible because it goes against gender ideology. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's a, a, a way for self-affirmation, stuff like that. And it can be phrased a number of ways. I don't believe in a God who would condemn someone because of who they are. I don't believe in a God who thinks that homosexuals as a person rather than an identity or activity is evil. I can't believe in a God that would uh, persecute people on the basis of their sexual orientation. You'll find it phrased in a variety of ways, but it's all centering around that theme that the identity, the culture that's being put forward is incompatible with a Christian worldview, which in a way they're right. But when it comes to those who don't affirm the gospel, there's nothing to hold them accountable to. We shouldn't expect anything less. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So people who have a different perspective on the morality of sexuality than the Bible. Immoral by God's standards, right? Right. But, verse 10, he says, Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous extortioners or idolaters, just sin in general, because then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you, this was your point, Peter, not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater, reviler, or drunkard, or extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. The reason why is noting their position before God. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging those who are who also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside God judges? Therefore, and this is in reference to the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 17, I believe. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So the point being made by Paul is this. If someone, even someone close to you, even someone perhaps that you thought was saved, doesn't know the Lord, and they identify this, it is a secondary detail right. at most. Right. What matters most is for them to understand there is a God who loves them, who died for them, who rose from the dead to prove that the first two facts were true, and on that basis, they will either stand or fall before the Lord. Now, we have absolute confidence that the Spirit of our living God will lead them into all truth, but noting then that is the issue, the funny thing about a lie is that it sounds a lot like the truth, and there have even been some decent pastors, unfortunately, who have felt that in order to engage with the culture, they have to compromise on this language and say, oh, well, you know, let, let's uh, just make sure that uh, when preaching the gospel, we go to Athens, we'll use their uh, poets and philosophers. This ends up giving up too much. Right. So what we need to talk about is, first of all, 
when it comes to a non-believer who's a homosexual, that's easy. But when it comes to someone who would embrace gender theory in all of its facets, who would essentially buy into this dogma, we need to first understand what is it that makes a Christian a Christian, and how then do we properly, I guess, make sure we don't miss a stitch in our quilt, so to speak, because it is a dicey and needle-bound issue. Yeah, right, and we, we talk about this a lot. There, there are four non-negotiables that we tend to stick to, right? We want to make the list as small as possible. Right? We don't want to expand it out further than we should. And by the way, none of the four things that we're about to mention are that you can't refer to yourself by names. Right. So. Exactly. So uh, the first one and the most important one is who is God, right? How do you understand God? How do you understand his interaction with the creation? That kind of thing. Second one is who is Jesus Christ, right? Who was he? What did he do? Do you believe in a literal death and resurrection? Do you believe that that was, and this goes into the third thing, that that death and resurrection was for our sins and that the only way that we can have a relationship with that God is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the fourth one is where do we get this information? What do we think about the Bible? Is it inerrant or is it just something that men came up with and, you know, you can take some stuff here and leave some stuff out there, that kind of thing. So that would be the line. Now, with that all being said, we need to first be careful when we're holding people to these standards and make sure they actually hold them. If we're going to deal with this in any sense. We need to first understand and explain that to them. Do you believe these things? Now, with that then being said, when it comes to there being a God, the God of Israel in particular is the one who's revealed himself in history. We'll get to Jesus in a moment. But does that God have the right to say what our sexuality is and isn't? Or is that something he's left us to in our autonomy? Yeah, no, no, no. So we believe that God created us. And because we believe that God created us, it means that he formed and fashioned us according to his design. Uh, this is not something that we design for ourselves. It's something that we live into. So for the Christian, uh, we don't believe that it's up to us to be able to define our identity and define who we are. Jesus said, I call my sheep by name. The name in the Old Testament and the New Testament way of thinking was very important. It's who someone was. So when Jesus says that he has the right to call us by name, what he means is I have the right to tell you who you are. Uh, Romans chapter 9 says that he is the potter and we're the clay, right? He could fashion us however he wants. And that's quoting Isaiah chapter 60. Exactly. So, man, if I see that God has put me in a very particular body and God has directed my organs, including my sexual organs, I need to be, I need to live into that. I need to live unto that regardless of how I may feel or what I may believe. Now, there is something very interesting that we need to make a distinction about uh, right off the bat. So what we're seeing happening right now in our culture, which is pretty radical, is there is a large amount of people, it's becoming almost like a social contagion of people going into the LGBTQ mindset. So let me read some numbers, and this should kind of uh, disturb us a little bit. This is a Gallup poll, just came out last month, so end of February. Uh, in 2012, 3.5% of the population said that they were a member of the LGBTQ community, which is actually 
higher, much higher than it was in the early 2000s. And understand the terms here are very broad. It's not just limited to I'm attracted to those of the opposite gender or I'm attracted to those or I uh, consider myself an alternative gender in the LGBT terminology, asexual can be used for internet people who are abstinent. It's a very broad term. Right. So it's just anyone who's not heterosexual. That's basically how they define that. Uh, Now, in 2021, the numbers are, they doubled. It's now 7.1% of the population. Now, if you break that down by generations, it goes like this. In generation Z, which is the current generation, people born from 1997 to 2003, 20.8% 20.8% of the uh, the Generation Z consider themselves LGBTQ. 75% consider themselves straight. Millennials, this is my generation, 1981 to 1996, 10.5%. Now, just listen to that. That's double. That's double millennials. Uh, 10.5% consider themselves LGBT. Uh, 82.5% consider themselves heterosexual. Generation X, this is Bo's generation, 1965 through 1980, 4.2% consider themselves LGBTQ, and 89% consider themselves straight. Baby boomers is my dad's generation, your dad's generation. Uh, This is 1946 to 1964, 2.6% consider themselves LGBTQ, and 907 consider themselves straight. And traditionalists, people born before 1946, 0.8% consider themselves LGBTQ. 92% consider themselves uh, to be straight or heterosexual. That's a big difference. (laughs) That is a very big difference. Very recently. Very recently. So we're talking about something that used to be very fringe. And because of that, there are ways that we need to look at it, specifically when it comes to the issue of gender dysphoria. So when we're talking about someone who has legitimate gender dysphoria, that's an actual diagnosable, well, it used to be, they took it out of the DSM-5 now, but uh, it used to be an actual diagnosable mental disorder. And the people who had it, they had legitimate mental strain attached to it. And usually it was also attached to another type of mental disorder. And Walt Heyer, who wrote uh, his kind of I guess you call it like an autobiography kind of deal where he talks about his background of becoming, he's a man, he transitioned into becoming a woman. Actually, we have the book right here. Walt Hare, Uh, Transgender's Faith. Fantastic book, by the way, obviously graphic and dealing with his uh, childhood sexual abuse and trauma and a strange relationship that his parents notice a common feature. But when it comes to him processing all these things, he didn't consider himself a Christian until... Um, ultimately a point in his life where he then started to combat his distorted view of himself and others. But understand that when we're dealing with this issue, he's basically the scapegoat of, not the scapegoat, but the poster child, I should say, of sanity. The kind of person who understood my view of myself was based on a skewed worldview. And in light of the gospel, I was able to look at it from a different perspective than what my culture and, unfortunately, what my grandma Mm -hmm. groomed into me. Right. And we're seeing this as well at work in schools and in entertainment as well. It's become very not just popular but virtuous to associate yourself with victimized communities. And we've talked about this with CRT and others. Mm -hmm. But notice that when it's coming down to this issue, it's not just enough and uh, 
always hesitate to quote a man who offended Catherine the Great, of, uh, the Tsar of Russia, but, uh, or it would be Tsarette, anyway. Um, Voltaire made the point of noting, atheist by the way, that um, tell me who I'm not allowed to criticize, you are that one slave. Hmm. That's, that's the one who's in master of society. Right. Take the time. Uh, we made the presumption before starting this broadcast and answering this question that we're going to get a lot of flack if it draws the attention of the wrong eyes, labeled for hate speech and dismissed uh, from the public agora. We see that anyone who vocalizes even, not just even dissenting, but I guess not in the radical party line perspective of this issue, will be silenced. And we need to be aware of not only how volatile this issue is, but why it's so volatile. And this yeah. is why we see such a deviation between the Christian standard and that being demonized and the basic, uh, I guess, uh, any note of dissent must be silenced, right. that sort of mindset. So, so again, you, you're talking about something that used to be like a legitimate mental disorder, and it took something like what happened to Walt for that to happen to somebody's psyche, right? right. Uh, they had to be groomed or something was put into their brain as a young child that really screwed them up. Yeah, a long time, uh, I guess, not only cycle of abuse from those who identified themselves as men in his mind to, uh, in his childhood, but also yeah. a place of safety and security whenever he was with his grandma, and his grandma also liked dressing him up in dresses and calling him by different names, and he found uh, solace and peace and basically comfort right. in this alternative identity that was right. made for himself. Yeah, that he felt like that was more him because it felt more accepted. Yeah, right. and it would distance himself from the trauma he'd experienced, whether it was in an abusive context or even in a disciplinary context, because all of that was basically indistinguishable to him. It was right. a skewed view of reality, whereas the love of his parents in correcting him, though at times it was a little much, yeah. was indistinguishable from the abuse he received from relatives. Right. And by the way, I'm not uh, spilling the beans here. He wrote about it. Right. I think this is available. It's public right. information. Right. But as well, the quiet, the calm, the, the like you said, the acceptance that he found from his grandma, but in this perverse context. Right. Only when he was dressed up as a female. And being referred to by something other than his birth name. So. Right. And that's why you usually saw it. Uh, gender dysphoria back in the day was almost exclusive to boys. It was yeah. almost exclusive to young boys. But now uh, there's another fantastic book out there called Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier. Uh, they banned her book for a while. I think you could get it now. We'll, we'll see. Uh, but she talks about how this is becoming a huge social contagion. By the way, she's not a Christian, right? Uh, this is not a this is not an evangelical. This is not a Christian. This is just someone who is seeing a disturbing trend happen, and she has words. And by the way, she doesn't even deny that some people might legitimately be have gender dysphoria and would benefit from transitioning. So she actually takes a very different stance than the stance that me and Sean are taking. And yet she sees that this is very harmful because she saw a huge growing epidemic of young girls being thrown into this because what you see, and this is uh, going to help as well. So part of what we're going to be talking about right now is going to be preventative and part of it's going to be curative, if you want to put it that way. So what she sees is that this is not something that's happening organically. This is not something where, you know, every parent and all the families are just like, you know what, this is true, this is right, let's start raising our kids and instilling these values in them. What's happening is instead a top-down enforcement of this ideology is happening at basically all levels and institutional power that we have, uh, beginning with the education system and moving into 
what we would call like the media and uh, preferred speech. This is what's happened in our culture, and that's why it's so rapidly changing. And so what Abigail Schreier details is that a lot of these young girls, right, when you're a teenager, first of all, especially for young girls, young boys too, you have a lot of anxiety, you have a lot of fear, you have a lot of insecurity. And when you go into a guidance counselor, they'll say like, well, maybe you're the wrong gender. And once they gender you like that, the first thing they do is they start giving you hormone therapy, and that would include testosterone. You know one of the side effects of testosterone is it gives you more confidence. It takes away more of your anxiety. So if you're told at that age, like, hey, maybe you're the wrong gender, and you're like, well, maybe I am, maybe I'm not, and they say, hey, try these hormones, and if you start feeling more like you, then this is who you are. So they start taking these pills, and it starts making them feel more confident, less insecure. It starts beefing up their ego and it starts beefing up their their confident level. And therefore they think, oh my gosh, like this is what's wrong with me. So they start doing this to themselves. And this is why she calls it irreversible damage. They're taking these pills at an age where their bodies are going through puberty and they're literally causing irreversible damage to themselves. And then they're offering this as a solution to their friends. So it used to be something where, you know, Back in the day, right, back when the psychological community had a little bit more, I guess you would say, integrity, to be diagnosed with a mental disorder was not an easy thing, right? You would go in and they would have to run you through tests. They would have to counsel you for long periods of time and they would be very, very weary before they diagnosed you with something. And they would especially be weary before they started giving you pills to treat you for this. This is shifted. Well, they didn't have pills back then. They had things like electroshock therapy and uh, reverse trauma and all these other experimental things. It was very much a last resort. Exactly. And by the way, it still should be. It still should be. And that's a, that's a good point, what you just made. It's no longer, this type of therapy is no longer last resorts. And instead, it's what they immediately jump to. So diagnoses are thrown out very quickly. You could self-diagnose. You could go into your guidance counselor and say, I think I have this. And they will affirm it. That's all that they're allowed to do is to affirm you in your uh, self-perceived gender. Because if so, they deny you, they get sued for hate speech. Exactly. So this is something that's being, like I said, top-down forced into people. So as Christians, we have to recognize something. And this is something that uh, we talk about a little bit on the show. We have gotten used to, especially Christians in the West, we've gotten used to living in a culture that reflects our values, right? Because Christians built the United States. Protestant Christians built the United States, and so it was very easy for Christians to say, send your kids to schools, send your, go to the court systems, go to these various institutions within the country because they reflect our values. Now, if you read in the New Testament, you get a very different message, right? If you read through 1 Corinthians 6, for instance, Paul tells Christians not to go to the institutions that were established by the Romans. Why? Because the Romans did not build institutions that reflected Christian values. Or would they come to verdicts on that basis? <laughs> exactly. So Paul's like, why would you go to the court systems of the Romans when you know that they don't believe what you believe? And you know that the verdicts that they're going to give are going to go contrary to what you believe. And you're going to get in trouble for things that you didn't actually do. Go to the church, right? So he saw the church as like a self-contained almost country. He saw it as almost like a, a nation that people would have a governmental system and a structure, and it would allow them to be educated. It would allow them to grow. If you look at the functionality of the synagogue, for instance, in the first century, the synagogue was not just a place where people came to learn the Bible once a week. The synagogue actually trained young men in 
knowledge. They educated people. They performed all the ceremonies that people would go through. And we still do this to this day, right? Marriage, things like that. Uh, Baptismal, burial, right? All these things are under the confines of the church because the church is supposed to have this kind of authority. Now, my point is not to create some sort of a cult that we're like just in this commune and we're all just have this self-contained thing. Yeah, shepherding movements, what they call them, very much not biblical. Right, not great. <laughs> but but my point is, as we see the culture depart more and more from Christian values, it should put into the minds of Christians thinking, A, should I trust these institutions with my kids? Right? Should I allow these institutions to speak into my kids? Now, some parents will make the decision and say, yes, but if your answer is yes, you have to be sure that you are instilling in your kids good desires, good logic, good reason, good understanding of the world. A good example in that your perception of relationships and sexuality as a whole is a better or at least a more safe option than what the culture is providing through entertainment and education, which and is not easy. Exactly. And in your your a focused effort of instilling these things in your kids. So, for instance, my parents, they sent me and my sister to public school, right? I was educated through the public education system from second grade all the way till graduation. Now, even though the school system has declined quite a bit since I went there, uh, it's, I went there. Right, it's still, it still was pretty skewed away from Christianity, yeah. right? We were taught evolution as if it was a fact. We were taught various things about world history and culture that I know now to be totally false. But my parents were very intentional about my education. They were talking to me about what I was learning, what I thought about it. They challenged me. And they had in my mind always ask your teacher questions. Make them defend their points because they're there to educate you. This is what they should be doing. And they taught me this from a very young age. Did I make a lot of my teachers mad? Yeah. Was that because of my bad attitude sometimes? Absolutely. But sometimes it was legitimate. It was because my parents taught me, like, don't just wholesale believe what these people are saying. Make them defend their points. Have them explain it to you. Question them. Talk about it. Right? And then talk to us about it. Challenge us. My parents were very open about that. Challenge us on what we believe. And I was able to debate with my parents and talk to them. They were very open about that. So if you're going to send your kids to a public education system, you have to be that intentional about their about raising them. If not, if you're going to say, but even if you send them to private education system, this kind of stuff has infiltrated private education system. Yep. Uh, it absolutely has. Christian we, schools. Right, Christian schools. Uh, we, I'm not going to mention any names right now, but we do have relations. Me and Sean have relations with guys who work at these schools, and they're talking about CRT, right? The schools are implementing critical race theory into their curriculum. This, these are private schools. These are schools that have supposed Christian education. So you have to be very intentional about your kid's education. You cannot delegate that to the state or to some various church organization. You have to be very, very intentional about it. Now, for the last couple of minutes, I, I don't know if we're going to get time to get into it, but that's okay. We could always do it yeah. next week. Ask, um, how are we going to be more... So this is more proactive. What do parents need to do to be more proactive? What about reactive? Let's say someone in your life, whether it's your kid, a friend, a colleague, a family member, has bought into this ideology wholesale. They say, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. But I think that this is affirmed in Scripture. How should we talk to these people? Should we worry about their pronouns? Should we worry about, like, what, 
What, what basic advice could we give right now? Well, based on my experience, there's three ways to go about this, and it all depends on the person you're talking to. If they're the more go-along-to-get-along sensitive type, then you can give them the space to say, well, you know what? I trust God's, and this is, again, speaking to fellow Christians. We started this talk discussing non-Christians. That's easy. They call themselves a Christian, and they call them proponents of gender theory and CRT <clears throat> and everything else. I trust God's work in your life to not only lead you into all truth, but to critically examine in light of Scripture the things that you're being taught. And if you have questions for me, you know that I love you, and you know that I'm not going to intentionally lie to you. That's been my approach with people in my life who call themselves Christians and supported abortion up until and after birth. It didn't take a weekend before God did a work in their hearts. And, of course, there are other options as well. If they're more just, you know, I know what I believe and no one can tell me otherwise, they're that, you know, soldierly type, but they've been built into the system so much that it's you can't teach an old dog new tricks, then take them to task. I am personally of the belief, and I literally moved in with my roommate, is the type of personality that doesn't let me get away with being stupid. Sometimes I'll just intentionally say dumb things so that he'll call me on it. I know he still loves me. But the point being made is this. Challenge them on it. Know that it, know them rather well enough that it's not going to hurt their feelings if you challenge them on the points that they care about. Because if they love the truth, then when they start to see crumbles, they may not show it, but they are thinking. And that's why the brain's in the inside of the skull, not the outside. Otherwise, we could all tell what we were thinking. Yeah. And, and by the way, Walt Heyer, you know, if you read his book or listen to his interviews, he does a very good job of explaining this type, type of interaction that he had with Christians at his church, right? Yeah, his pastor was of the first type. He was gentle with them. He reminded them, mm-hmm. well, this is what <clears throat> God's Word says, and if you have questions, you can come to me. But just know if this is where you're at, I hope that God ministers to you where you're at. But just remember what Jesus has done, who he is, and that is what's most important. He didn't dismiss these things when he was challenged on it, but he did bring what was most important to the focus. His relationship with God came first, and that's the probably the most common individual we're going to come to. is someone who has such a surface-level idea of everything, Christianity, CRT, gender theory, etc. It is so basic and so broadly understood when you're thrown a bunch of different topics and just saying, well, what about this? What about this? That's their only talking point. The key is to like uh, something big and expansive that's very thin. What do we call that? A balloon. It only takes one poke to pop the whole thing. Focus on pick one of the many topics that are being brought up and encourage them together, especially if they're a part of your family, to dig down to the bone of those things. If you choose gender theory, are you sure that this guy, uh, Kinsley, is the sort of man you would want structuring your thought process? Hmm. Oh, well, let's go to CRT. Well, look at the founders and their behavior. Do you think that the money matches the message? Okay, well, let's start with the Bible and these passages. Let's study in the Greek. Let's ask the pastor. Let's call this... Uh, it's weird, but this uh, Bible question and answer program online, maybe uh, they might have something to say. Focus on one issue. If it's a broad spectrum but very surface level, and parents, trust me, you know your kids. This is most of us. Deal with one issue down to the bone, and you'll find the rest ripple away once they start to realize, I've been lied to, or at least I didn't look into this the way I ought to. Mm-hmm. And note, if they choose not to care, they choose not to care. That's between them and God. But note the three kinds of people. One, the kind of person who's so sensitive that they need the internal work before external change. 
give them space and pray. The second is surface level, but nothing of depth. Mm. Focus on one issue down to the bone and see how that impacts their perception going forward. And the third and most significant is if they're just set in their ways, then engage with them. But make sure you know the person before you diagnose how to approach that sort of issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and there's a lot of trial and error and give and take. I was talking to this one uh, couple. Their, their son is transitioning right now. And... Um, Basically, in the beginning, the idea was the dad said he claims to be a Christian. He claims to believe in God. I cannot have fellowship with him, right? I can't have a relationship with my son because he's believing in these things. He knows where I stand. He knows I love him, but I just can't do it. That was his conviction. The mom's conviction was I want to be a part of my son's life. I don't care if he's transitioning. I want to be a part of his life. And so he knows where I stand. He knows what I believe. I'm not going to harp on it every single time I communicate with him. But, you know, I want to stay a part of his life. And that worked for a while until he was like, either you affirm me or you get out of my life. And she had to make that decision. And that was tough. You know, it's a difficult decision to make as a parent to say, like, I'm sorry, I can't compromise on what I believe to be true. You know, so if if you have to kick me out of your life, then OK. But I, I'm I'm here for you. I love you. And I hope that you decide to pick up this relationship again. So, yeah, it's it's a very difficult topic for sure. Yeah, but just understand those points. Know your Bible. If anything else, this is a call <laughs> to arms for the church to not only know what we believe, but why and how to defend it. So, mm-hmm. know why this program exists. Got a few questions sent along to us from Yari. Uh, speaking of men and gender roles, uh, he wants to know about cross-dressing and what it means to be effeminate. Those are two different topics. Let's start with the easy one. Uh, <clears throat> as far as any direct condemnation of a man wearing woman's clothing or vice versa, uh, Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5 says, a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Not subtle. However, that's under the Old Covenant, and we note as well uh, mixing fibers and all those sort of things. There are things that would pertain to the priests and have specific cultural context. So do we see it further detailed in the New Testament? Well, if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there is a example, or an example. Let me make sure I get my grammar right. Uh, regarding a cultural perception of how men and women ought to look, but noting in a perverse context, women would be identified by, as prostitutes if they shave their head. It's not saying if a woman putteth a razor to her skin, she is sinful. No, shave your pets, please. <laughs> uh, legs too, if you prefer, but this is the point that's being made. When we're talking about the address or a man having long hair, it's not saying get a haircut, you dirty hippie, or all that kind of stuff. It was identifying male prostitutes. The <clears throat> cultural perception was that. So if I go to, say, for instance, uh, Japan and go to more cultural areas, the guys are wearing their kimonos and stuff. I don't say, you're wearing a dress, that's sinful. No, that's how they perceive men of eldership in that society that's not uh, of course a problem but if on the other hand you see like the neko made outfits that doesn't need explanation that's just even they think it's weird so understand the point that's being made on a cultural basis what's the heart and intent behind it on how others are going to see you in deuteronomy it was don't be like the pagan nations who regularly in the ancient world even, blurred these lines intentionally in order to elicit sexual reactions. Obviously, it was a joke in the Bugs Bunny cartoons because we thought it was ridiculous. Now it's a crime if they don't portray it. So here's the point. Uh, If we have direct condemnation in the old, look for similar context and clarification in the new. When Paul the Apostle says it's a shame, 
for a man to have long hair and a woman ashamed to be shorn. It's not a condemnation against razors or follicle neglect. It's making the point, what's your intention in appearing this way? Are you trying to elicit these sort of reactions? But if on the other hand, they're just, you know, <laughs> uh, like our uh, youth pastor Bo, he's just like likes the, the man bun, I guess. I, I don't question his heart. Uh, we have jokes at his expense behind his back, but that's about it. And when it comes down to it, that's literally his intent. But if on the other hand, in a culture, you're wearing different clothes, or you're participating in different sport teams, I just said that, you're trying to, there's an intent there. Right. And so that's what needs to be examined. So like if, if a man wore a dress, right? Yeah. There's, a, there's a very particular intent in wearing a dress. You know, there's a reason why Harry Styles was on the cover of Vogue because he wore a dress. No it's one not, wears frills. Right. <laughs> it, it was clearly an attention thing, yeah. right? There, there was no other reason for him doing that. He wouldn't have been on the front page of Vogue unless he was wearing that ridiculous outfit, right? So there, there are clear things that are created by different people who make our clothing to accentuate either masculine or feminine traits within people. So if I'm a masculine person, if I'm a man, and I wear something that was designed to accentuate the female body, it's going to look ridiculous on me. And beyond that, I am violating that kind of gender role kind of idea that I am going beyond what God would want for me, and that is to honor my given sex, to honor my given uh, gender that he has given me, and to be able to extend that to the rest of people around me, not to live apart from it, which yeah. is the intent. So if a woman wears jeans, she's not sinning. She just wants pockets. Right. But if on the other hand, she's like, you know, got the fake mustache and cutting her hair short and everything else, I have questions. Right. But it's, again, not necessarily sinful. Short hair's easier to maintain. You have to ask more questions. You have to know the person. And the purpose yeah. for why they're doing it. So that would be how we deal with that. But he gives another question, uh, wants to know what does it mean to be effeminate? Now this is a big one when it comes to having these sort of conversations. Let me read the passage and clarify the translation so that we right. are able to get around this issue. Right. It probably shouldn't be translated this way. No. Um, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and starting in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, those who practice sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, those who violate marital law within <clears throat> or sexuality within marriage, nor homosexuals, now that's translated from what's generally referred to as effeminate, nor sodomites. Now, it seems like Paul's being redundant there because homosexual and sodomite are two sides of the same coin, generally in reference to men, but you remember Sodom, sodomy. That's another term for the homosexual act. He goes on to say, nor thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Doesn't end. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So, obviously, it's not the sin to end all sins. Otherwise, verse 11 wouldn't be there. But when we see people say, oh, well, when it makes the distinction, that's actually intentional. You see, uh, effeminate and sodomite. This is actually a veiled Greek reference to pederasty, child prostitution, which was commonly practiced, to their point, in Greek and Roman culture. And that's all that he's condemning. He's not saying that, this is a quote from Matthew Vines, not from me, that monogamous, fidelitous, God-loving and fearing homosexual unions aren't honored by God. Now, what would be the problem with that handling of the controversy regarding effeminate uh yeah a couple couple big problems actually the, the first one is that 
That's not what the text says. It's just not what the text says. So whenever someone falls back on the semantics, they they get back to the Greek. (laughs) They're just like, ooh, you know, the Greek, it doesn't really mean this. If you look at the Greek words, Paul could have not been more emphatic about what he was talking about, right? That's right. He's being very, very clear. He is not using a word to describe pederasty. He is not using a word to, to talk about grooming of young boys. He is using a word that directly means when two men have intimacy with one another. Uh, beyond that, the other passages that talk about homosexuality in the Bible don't use any euphemisms whatsoever. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, if a man lies with a man as he does with a woman, it is an abomination. I don't think you get more clear than that, right? That's that's not, you can't go back to the Hebrew and be like, well, the Hebrew word here could, it? no, it's very clear what's being spoken of. If a man lies with a man, it's clearly saying as he lies with a woman, meaning a sexual act, then that is an abomination to God. And in, note... Because this will be taken out of context. Let us clarify. Are we saying then that we are to take them out and stone them to death? No, we're not under a theocracy. We're not under the Old Covenant law. But the Old Testament laws demonstrate God's interests, God's perception, God's preferences on these matters. If we call ourselves Christians, we should care about that, not dance around them. Exactly. So once again, there's there's a particular gender that God gave us. That gender reflects a different gender, meaning that the gender that I have stands in contrast to my wife's. And when we come together, there is a complementary nature to what we are able to do, not only together as a couple, but also in the fact that we can create life. We could actually procreate and have children. That is something that's very important. Now, I'm not saying that every couple is going to have the capacity to have kids. There are certain birth defects and things like that that prevent women from being able to do that. But what I am saying is that in and of itself, the relationship in and of itself has that potentiality and that dichotomy. And we can get into 1 Corinthians 6 and why that's so important if you guys want. But also, speaking of that, like I said, I think that that's a bad translation. I think that when the translators of 1 Corinthians 6 add in, it's not every translation, but there are some translations that translate that word effeminate. That's a bad translation because effeminate just means someone that is more bending towards more uh, more gender tropes that are associated with female. That's all it means. So feminine and masculine are malleable, right? We can, you can be an effeminate man. You could be a masculine woman. There's nothing unbiblical about that, right? So we do see effeminate traits in certain men within the scriptures. Let's use David, for example. Uh, one effeminate trait is being emotional. David was a pretty emotional guy. Uh, even if you look at his relationship with Jonathan, an incredibly emotional attached relationship, there's no homosexuality there, but they definitely had an incredible love for one another. They were very affectionate. They were very close, right? They shared their feelings. They shared their emotions with one another. It's not really what you would call like a traditional masculinity. And when you go into the old Testament, there are also very masculine women. Uh, I think about Deborah. In the book of Judges, that was a that was a woman, you know, that was a very masculine woman. There's nothing condemned about that nature. God actually uses her masculine nature in order to lead an army, right? He wouldn't have chosen just some effeminate girl who's into girly things. He would choose a warrior woman, and that's what Deborah was. So there's nothing inherently sinful about a man being effeminate or a woman being masculine. The the what would be condemned is okay. Well, I'm a an effeminate man, so therefore I am a woman. That would be a mistake. Right. Uh, just say, well, I'm an effeminate man, and I'm going to live into that. I'm going to still maintain the role. It's no excuse for me to deny my roles to be like, well, I'm more effeminate. Uh, I'm more emotionally connected. So therefore, 
I'm not going to live into my role as being the head of the house. I feel like my wife, she's more masculine, and therefore she has more authority behind her, and she's able to handle these things better, so I'm just going to give that role to her. No, you still have to live into your roles. You can't deny your roles, but you have to live into them given your particular gender, not just the way you bend when it comes to that type of spectrum not of masculine society said so, but because God has called you to it. You honor God even in ways that culture disagrees with. We call that persecution that's right so uh yeah i hope hope that helps so all right thank you Ari. uh question from osman we didn't get to this yesterday uh he wants to know when were hell and the great white throne created <clears throat> at creation or later uh yeah osman it's a interesting issue because if we take one perspective over another it makes other passages and the handling thereof kind of sticky so let's first uh just state what we know when are they first mentioned uh, the first mention of the great white throne judgment, in that sense, the great white throne in that case, doesn't appear in Scripture until Revelation chapter 20, where all people are coming to account at the end of the age. Do I believe then that the throne was just created at that moment for that purpose? I'd have to make an assumption that I'm not comfortable doing. If on the other or hand, or even I, if the, there's even a debate, is it going to be a literal throne? Yeah, and right. that's another point. When we look at Ezekiel chapter one, for example, God had thrones before, but right. the question is: Is He condescending to mankind in their perception of a position of power right. when God doesn't need a chair? Right. He doesn't have glutes <laughs> yeah. to rest. Right. So, you, uh, church people here, yeah. you, you get the point. It's obviously going to be a picture for a position of power, judgment, and authority, something that we're familiar with. Whether there's a literal representation of it in heaven, I don't see it in the tabernacle, which was modeled after the basically goings-on in heaven, by the way. But uh, we see in Revelation 4 that a throne is also represented there. I saw a throne, and the one was on it like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. I would question the logic of reading so much into that idea that from eternity that throne was just a part of god's nature and so based on the authority the throne the chair was always there but we don't know when it was created but we know god from which that throne emanates its authority from our perception was always there so we aren't told we are told when the white throne will be relevant to us but not when it was created yeah. uh, hell is a little bit more fun uh, obviously mentioned in several different contexts, and we'd clarify the difference between Sheol, the Department of the Dead, and the Abode and all that other stuff. But the uh, heart of the earth, we'll deal with that more in a minute. But the creation of hell, obviously Matthew 25 notes it was created, the depart from me to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Right. Notice not created for the devil and his angels later, prepared for. There's an anticipation of something. They're not there yet. Right. Um, the debate is whether God introduced these things at creation and was aware of their fall and knew that this existence apart from himself would include those who rejected him but still offer salvation to all anyway. The other theory is that the fall of Satan happened sometime before the introduction of space, time, and matter, so there was no time that hell was created. It was just introduced pre-creation. Hmm. So, and we can get into all the semantics and that till your brain melts. But the point being made is this. Uh, as far as timing, we aren't told when they started, but we do know when they're relevant, and that's when they're mentioned. And when Jesus discusses it in quite frankly, more detailed than we're comfortable with. Hmm. The point being made is that an awareness of existence after this life apart from God. The great white throne. We're made aware of God's authority and right to judge 
after this life and at the end of the age. So their introduction, as far as their timing, we aren't told, at least not in as much detail as we'd like to get a direct answer to your question. We are told that they are there and that they serve that purpose. That much we can be content with. Is there anything more you'd add or correct? No, that's good. All right, so then building on that point, um, we had a question that we wanted to get to in more detail yesterday, but we kind of had to finish the broadcast with it. Uh, I'll hand it off to you because I spoke my piece. Um, the idea of Sheol being in the heart of the earth or underground or these kinds of pictures, uh, where did that come from? The divine comedy, paradise lost, Jewish uh, mysticism perhaps, or there Bible passages that talk about a literal hell in the center of the earth because it's hot and molten or something? Well, where, where do we get these artistic representations of hell being down there as opposed to just this alternative dimension, if you will, uh, apart from God's blessings. Uh, yeah. So basically the word Sheol means grave. So when you think about it, when you take people and you bury them, where you bury them in the earth. So the, the idea of grave has always been down, right down in the earth. And the idea of heaven has always been the idea of ascension because you've always seen it depicted that way. The heavens have always been thought of as ancient man as the dwelling place of the deities. So that that's why they would name the constellations and things like that, because they thought that the gods literally lived up there. And even though the biblical authors didn't believe that way, they definitely spoke into cultures that thought that way. This is why Paul uses the phrase celestial bodies, right? The word celestial just means heavenly, right? He's talking about these heavenly bodies. There's, there's something that is beyond the earth. It's, it's above us. So that's why those distinctions are there. It's just what man would have understood back in the day. But again, we don't think that heaven is up, nor do we think that hell is actually down, right? That, 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 that that's literally happening, but that's how God depicted it. So for instance, there were some Christians who thought that heaven was literally up, right? You could actually fly to heaven. Uh, now, this is something that was pretty much summarily dismissed by the early Christians. And C.S. Lewis actually does a very good job of this because people were making fun of Christianity. And C.S. Lewis is like, ah, you know, there's something I'm pretty good at, and that's reading ancient texts. And uh, C.S. Lewis went through the ancient theology of the early church as well as ancient Judaism. And he shows that the prime belief of the main proponents of Christianity and Judaism never thought that way. They always thought of it as something on a different plane. But the common man, right, the, the, the lay person, they might start believing that way and they might start articulating themselves that way. So you have like the Divine Comedy where Dante is using, it's clearly thickly metaphored and stuff like that. It's not meant to be taken in a, a strictly literal sense. But well, And he based most of his perception on three things, the Jewish mystical writings of this, which were not <laughs> biblical. Right. The second was, of course, Paradise Lost, which was written contemporaneously with him. And then the, Milton, right? Yeah, and the, yeah. the point being made around that. And then, of course, his inspiration largely, unfortunately, came from the Theogony, which right. was Greek paganism. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. So a lot of bad and not, not Christian sources kind of feeding into this, uh, like I said, metaphoric kind of look at things. Artistic. Yeah, That's artistic, allowed. Right. Just make sure that you understand. That it is artistic. <laughs> yeah. So, so all these things are just you know, that we're taking leaps. But again, the, the majority of Christians that we realized that we were just using these terms because they're easy to understand. And in fact, 
different types of words have been used to describe hell as well. Jesus called hell the, the place of outer darkness, for instance. Uh, outer darkness would refer to beyond the vanishing point, right? So beyond where the last star can shine its light. So actually he talked of it almost like outer space. Uh, but in other times he called it, uh, gosh, um, Gehenna which was a reference to a garbage dump. So, you know, which had some very unsavory activities done within that place in historical fashion. So uh, they use terminology to help people understand something that was beyond our plane and beyond our scope of existence. But they didn't actually think it was that way. No one actually thought like, oh, Jesus is going to send people to Gehenna. I know where that is. You know, he's going to... He's he's garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. He's he's just going to throw him out there. The Bible (laughs) contradicts itself. It says the heavens and the earth will pass away. So how are they going to go to a literal place that no longer exists? Because that's not what it means. Right, yeah. So they they were just using terminology people to understand. But yeah, no, no one... None of the actual... Uh, authorities on the scriptures ever thought that way. Yeah. So just make sure we make the <coughs> distinction. We check the sources regarding where people got these artistic expressions from. We treat art as art and also the Bible as the Bible. We know the difference why we trust between the two, but note that point as well. Um, Sheol, the place of the dead, the heart of the earth, these are words. Right. But as far as their significance in terms, we look to the guy who went there Jesus of Nazareth to explain their significance. And as far as him descending into the lower parts of the earth, that's again, using language, not necessarily describing locations. It would be much to read that into Ephesians four. Essay is a question, not necessarily biblical, but I think we can make a biblical comparison to it. Uh, He wants to know, would you say in ancient times, shifts like the ones we're seeing in the United States uh, led to the collapse of those civilizations? Uh, Pessimism, joined but uh the point being made is this um look if you want to see civilization shifts i look no further than the book of judges that was seven consecutive civilization shifts over a period of 400 years and what was interesting was israel didn't collapse and it had just begun actually yeah and it's also worth noting the united states hasn't existed for 400 years israel has gone through more of these shifts than we can count and they still not only exist as a people but as a nation today not because they were such a great nation but because god made a covenant if on the other hand were to say, so what do you say for the United States? I'd say be faithful whatever country you're in. We have people right. listening in Great Britain. Guys have had interesting times in history, interesting shifts. France even more so. Iran, Afghanistan, China, name your pick. But the point being made is where people are, the gospel can be shared. If we have more liberties or more freedoms or fewer, we can do and be faithful with whatever we can. But that's the point, not to yeah. anticipate destruction, but to make use of of, uh, not revival, but um, what would be the word I'm looking for? Make use of the opportunity for salvation for people who need it. Yeah, and and one more important thing about the the scripture. So I could I can map out the trajectory. So in other words, if the country keeps going in the direction that it's going, do I think it would come apart? Yeah. Uh, because any country that attacks the nuclear family is going to fail <laughs> because it's the it's literally the foundational piece of what makes a country a country. It's the most important part of culture. So if you're going to attack the nuclear family, yeah, you're going to have some big problems on your hand. Also, you could talk about the isolationism of American thought, the narcissism of American thought. There are a lot of things going against us right now. But one of the main things that we see in the scriptures is, A, even cultures that were doing very well – God could wipe them out when he wants, right? So there are some cultures where they didn't have any of these internal sociological issues, and they still got destroyed by— Tyrant Sidon, yeah. 
<clears throat> exactly, because God's like, because I said so. <laughs> it's well, going to happen. There you know? are good reasons, but no. Right, right, for uh, more judgment's sake, for, for sin's sake. But also, there is no limit to what God can reform. Think about Nineveh. Right, Nineveh was heading that way, and they had already uh, crossed that path. Exactly, and one preaching from the worst missionary ever recorded in Scripture was able to bring the people back from the brink. So it's never too late for a country to turn around. I think that Christians can make a mistake in thinking like, well, you know, I see the trajectory it's going, it's going down, so I'm just going to kind of <laughs> get out of here while the getting's good, uh, leave the ship before it goes down. Be careful. You never know what God's going to do. So we need to be optimistic, right? Hope for the best, plan for the worst. Could it could it go down? Yeah. But does that mean that Christians should immediately get out of all the spheres of influence because we believe it's going to go down? That would be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Fight as though it could be saved, but know that it might not be. Yeah, again, our hope isn't in the preservation of our civilization. Our hope mm-hmm. is faithfulness in this life, wherever that is. And in your favorite book, Jeremiah, chapter 17, 5 through 10, yeah. what's the, to finish up this point of contrast, woe to the man who puts his faith in man, for he'll be like a shrub in the desert who will not see when good comes. Yeah. Summarized. Yeah. Blessed is the man whose hope and confidence is the Lord. What he compared to? A myrtle tree, something built to last in adversity, who not only is uh, planted, excuse me, by the streams, knows where his provision comes from, but noting as well, plenty of examples throughout history, when things got really bad, worried about food shortages and so forth, God was able to take care of his people. But if on the other hand, he notes, what about those who started salvation? Well, what about those who were executed and lined up in the concentration camps and gulags and pogroms and so forth what what's going to happen when the next big push comes from the left or the right well we'll deal with that when we get there right now i have the opportunity to share the gospel with you so i am peter has the opportunity to share the gospel with you so he is peter martin has welcomed a beautiful bouncing baby girl into this world so he's going to be a good father to her as far as what they're going to teach her in school tomorrow you haven't gotten there yet you're not even in school yeah. don't worry about tomorrow tomorrow will worry about its own things to each each day is sufficient for its own trouble. Who uh, who said that again? Jesus. I trust that guy. <laughs> Thank you all for uh, joining us. The music's about to come on, and uh, do, as per your views, it's hard to hear us, not just because we're quiet little church mouses, but because the music is intentionally getting louder to make its way into the next broadcast. But we thank you all for your participation. Uh, Let us know if you have questions in the future. Note our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. We'll be looking forward to engaging with you more on this tomorrow. But until then, we, in the word of the Lord, may the word of the Lord be in you. God bless you, and we'll see you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.